Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. And this one is an interview that I did with John Philip Newell. Uh, we're going way back in the archives here. This interview took place at Largo in the um, early part of 2018, February of 2018. John Philip Newell lives in Scotland. He's an author, teacher, mystic, revolutionary, wise sage, guru. He's all these things. He's an experience. And every time I get to be with him, I come away. Um, I just pick up so much. He's just so inspiring to me. So any chance to ask him questions and to learn from him, uh, I'll take. And that's what we did at Largo in February and realized we'd never released it. So we're going to play that in a minute. But first, a couple things. Um, this is... Uh, the last of a series of Robcasts, and then I'm going to go off the grid for a little bit. I'll be traveling in UK, doing UK and Ireland tour, then Brazil. But we'll be back on and uh, sometime in August. We'll be back on all new episodes, new series, new teachings, new sermons, and all of that. But um, so in the meantime, there's obviously all the long form audio. We just released the first part of my new commentary on the book of Leviticus. It's called Blood, Guts, and Fire, the Gospel According to Leviticus. And the first part is three hours long, and it covers the first seven chapters. So um, there's that, and then there's something to say, which is seven hours and 45 minutes of me giving you my best content on communicating, on the art of communicating, on how does an idea begin to take shape and form so that you could actually share it with the world. And then there's also Launching Rockets, which is... Um, my 17 observations on being a parent. So there's all sorts of long-form audio, if that's your thing. And then I'll be back in August. And then one more thing. I wrote a play. Uh, the play I wrote is called What's a Nucka? <laughs> and it's the standard spelling of Nucka. K-N-U-C-K-A. Um, that's a joke, by the way. And my play is being directed and developed by Kristen Hange. Um, Kristen's actually been on the Robcast. Kristen directed Rock of Ages on Broadway. She actually was nominated for a Tony Award for Rock of Ages on Broadway. So she's um, directing it and developing it. And the next stage in the process of bringing my play to the stage is called a workshop read, which is where uh, you cast it and the actors stand on a stage behind music stands and sort of perform the script um, reading it. And uh, so she's describing to me the next... Um, stage of the development of the play, and she and I were laughing like, I think people would find the workshop reads interesting. So let's, uh, let's take over a theater and let's put up some tickets so that people can be a part of the process of the play coming to the stage. So workshop read tickets for my new play, What's a Nucka, are now up at my site. We're doing three nights in September at the Greenway Theater um, here in Los Angeles, and I'd love for you to be there. Kristen and I will come out, and we'll sort of give you um, a bit of background on the life of the play, and uh, we'll show you some pictures of set, um, set designs, that sort of thing. Then the actors will come out, and they'll, do, they'll read the play. And then at the end, Kristen and I will come out and cover a more, uh, few more things. So, yeah. So if you want to be at those, all of that, the long-form audio, Blood, Guts, and Fire, tickets for Holy Shift Tour, all that's at my site. But now, my friends, John Philip Newell. Okay, now, 
I get to bring out. Honestly, like, John Philip Newell, how many of you, there are distinct moments in your life when somebody came along and their words were exactly what you needed for that next stage of your path? Anybody had that experience where you're like, either they were showing you what's possible at the exact moment you needed it, or they gave you the gift of naming. They gave language to the thing that you've been feeling but didn't know what to call it. Anybody know what I'm talking about? And, and then you look back and you realize, like at every stage, there was somebody sort of helping you. Um, I discovered John Philip Newell uh, a couple years ago. And when I started reading him, I was just overwhelmed with this. this first off, I was like, this guy's so far ahead. Um, but also, he seemed to be naming things that, uh, I, that I had been feeling but didn't have the depth or understanding. Um, and so then I finally got to meet him. And then after some emails, he said, you can call me JP. Big moment for me. Um, and then we've done a couple of interviews. And the first time I was with him, I was just like, I, I want to be like him. So any of you who have bumped into any of my work and wondered where does that come from, it comes from people watching people like him. And uh, so when he said he was going to be in L.A. and we should do something, I thought, Largo with John Philip Newell would be like the best. So I'm sure you're going to have fun, but I get to introduce him to you. And then he's written all sorts of books, but um, one of his books, he's one of my favorite authors, and I didn't know he'd written this book, Christ of the Celts. I found out that he'd read it when he said, well, why don't we talk about that book? I was like, uh, yeah, that book. And then I went to Amazon and realized he had a book I hadn't heard of. So I'm going to interview him specifically about this book, and then we'll be all over the place. So ladies and gentlemen, he's here all the way from Edinburgh, Scotland, John Philip Newell. So you normally do stuff in like music comedy clubs? Is that sort of your normal scene? Yeah, every night. <laughs> <laughs> and for people who have never read you or met you, when you meet, like if you're out for a curry, <laughs> or you're on an airplane, and you meet them, and you tell them that you're John Philip Newell, because JP is like an inside thing, and they say, well, what do, you, what do you do, or what's your work? How do you describe who you are and what you do? Well, um, normally I, I avoid speaking to people on airplanes. I'm, <laughs> I'm ashamed to say that. But um, when I'm finally drawn into conversation, I, um, I say that I'm trying to give articulation to the human soul uh, for this moment in time. Is that enough for people? <laughs> are there people who are like, oh, okay, yeah, 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 I'm a plumber. <laughs> how does that how does the conversation go from there well I mean it ends some conversations <laughs> but I, I think many are um, are wondering what, what the soul is trying to pu push forward at this stage so um, yeah it, it sometimes leads into unexpected uh, showings from people's own soul um, both both in terms of uh, places of sorrow, but also places of celebration and joy. 
When someone says to you, what do you mean by soul? What do you say to them? One of the, uh, one of the phrases that we hear again and again in the Celtic world from which I draw so heavily in my work and in my writings is to speak of the uh, sun behind the sun, um, the life within all life, the light uh, within the light, and I think soul is, um, is pointed to uh, with these phrases, that it's the withinness from, from which life has come forth. See what I mean? <laughs> We're like two questions in, you're like, whoa. Now, one of the things I love that, I, that I've noticed, in, that it's like a thread that runs through all of your books is you often talk about that which is deepest within us. And I remember when I first came across you using that, that which is deepest within us. And it feels like that's the thing that undergirds all your work at some level. And so, so once you talk to them, what do you mean by that? And you talk about that which the deepest within us is good, it's whole, it's love. Can you say more about that? So much of our uh, Western Christian inheritance has, has started with um, the doctrine of original sin or wanting to say that what is deepest in us is opposed to God. <clears throat> and one of the great liberations for me of the, of the Celtic stream uh, has been to say that what is deepest in us is sacred or what is deepest in us is of God. That's not to say that there aren't, aren't all sorts of layers of confusion and conflict within us, but it's to say that what is at the very heart of our being is of God rather than opposed to God. Uh, Julian of Norwich, the 14th century mystic, put it so simply, uh, but, but so radically, when she said, we're not just made by God, we are made of God. Uh, which is to say that this stuff, the stuff of the matter of the earth, the stuff of the bodies of those who are hungry today, those who are seeking sanctuary in our nation, this is holy stuff. And these are holy lives that we're being invited to be in, in relationship with. Um, so uh, what I'm not meaning is the doctrine of original sin. And... Um, a number of years ago, I, I got to have a dialogue with a, a rabbi and a imam, and I was there as the, the Christian teacher. I mean, it sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Sort of <laughs> like you were walking into a bar. Rabbi, <laughs> imam, that's right. And um, someone in, in the uh, audience uh, at one point said, would you talk about original sin? And um, this, is not a, this is not a Jewish problem. And it's not a Muslim problem either. Not, neither of those traditions start with a sense that what is deepest in us is opposed to God. They both start with a sense that we are of the sacred. Um, but the rabbi was the first to respond. And he said, um, he said, original sin. He said, that to most Jews would mean that was a really original sin. That was a really. That was really creative. Sin. Have you seen the Eddie Izzard bit about I poke my eye, poke my eye with a badger? Oh, original, well done. <laughs> yeah. No one's th thought of that before. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you say uh, page four of, of Christ of the Celts, you have this line, uh, what is deepest within us is to say that wisdom is deep within us, deeper than the ignorance of what we have done or become. It is to say that the passion of God for what is just and right is deep within, deeper than any apathy or participation in wrong that has crippled us. To bear the image of God is to say that creativity is at the core of our being, deeper than any barrenness that has dominated our lives and relationships. And above all else, it is to say that love and the desire to give ourselves away to one another in love is at the heart of who we are, deeper than any fear or hatred that holds us hostage. Come on, JP. <laughs> Sometimes I read your stuff and I just put the book down and I just sit there for a while. And then I pick it back up because the next paragraph has stuff too. <laughs> so I'm just going to keep going. You want to say anything about that? So to every person here who, who we're driven mad by all the ways in which we, we get angry with coworkers and we lose our minds in traffic and we, why can't I get it together? We're, we have an endless loop in our head of all the things that we're not. At the core of your work is this reclaiming of the thing that's deeper than that. And for me, uh, it's very much about therefore being, being part, part of the work of liberation that is setting those depths free in one another rather than feeling we have to deposit something uh, that is foreign to, to the other or invoke some sort of presence that is absent from the other. It's, and I th I, for me, that's what Jesus meant when he spoke about being born again. He, and this is such a, a, a central mantra to Jesus's teachings and wisdom that I think we need to reclaim it because it's a phrase that's been hijacked to give the impression that we have to become something other than ourselves. And f for me... Uh, <laughs> that's so money right there, come on. <laughs> Yeah, and it, you know, so it, it's about liberation, how we can be part of one another's liberation. Uh, but it also very importantly um, is, uh, is not primarily about repent and become like us or uh, repent and become something other than what you are, uh, essentially are. Um, I love... I love that statement of Woody Allen when, when he says, my only regret in life is that I'm not somebody else. Um, you know, that's, that's typically funny of Woody Allen, but it, he, he is pointing to this deep tragedy uh, that has been part of our religion and so much part of our culture that we need to become something other than what is deepest within us. It's interesting to me how much of your writings you never separate like religion is over here, but you're always talking about how religions have shaped larger cultural, um, like almost like the larger cultural stream. And I love how you talk, you talk here about the Christian household. And when I read that, I was like, I wonder who's in that. But what's interesting is you said, that's anybody who's been a part of 
a religion or who's been burned by it or turned off by it or repulsed by it. You name the toxic effects throughout all of culture, even for those who would say, I have nothing to do with that. You talk about how it all affects things anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's this enormous uh, diaspora of the Christian household. Um, uh, many of us not, not feeling fed within the four walls of our inheritance. And I think that that, that diaspora, that sort of dispersion of our brothers and sisters, uh, I think the diaspora is waiting for something to be born, something... Um, uh, a, a new and ancient language to give voice to what we uh, know deep in our souls, but we haven't necessarily been hearing it um, said or um, we haven't been fed with that wisdom often uh, within the four walls. It's interesting how often that's truth you connect with anxiety. So you write, we're at page five now. By the way, just for the record. See what I'm saying? Uh, In fact, read my first chapter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you have this great line. The more distant we become from our true self, the more we fall under the sway of the false self or the counterfeit spirit. And when we forget the deep root of our being we become prone to fear and anxiety. That just feels like of this cultural moment right now, all the fear and anxiety. Yeah. Yes, I, th I mean, so much of our uh, lifestyle, uh, culture, political realm is driven, driven by fear. Okay, I, uh, I have to read this section. You talk about gospel, which literally means good news. Um, you say, I do not believe that the good news is given to tell us that we have failed or been false. That is not news, and it is not good. <laughs> we already know much of that about ourselves. We know we have been false, even to those whom we most love in our lives and would most want to be true to. We know we have failed people and whole nations throughout the world today who are suffering or who are subjected to terrible injustices that we could have done more to prevent. So the gospel is not given to tell us what we already know. That's so badass, by the way. I love that. With a... So the gospel is not given to tell us what we already know. Rather, the gospel is given to tell us what we do not know or we have forgotten. And that is who we are, sons and daughters of the one from whom all things come. Come on. That's a bumper sticker. You know what I mean? I love that. We already know. Um, one time I was speaking at this outdoor festival, and it seemed like a lot of people. I'd never done one of these sorts of things before, and it seemed like a lot of people. And I said to the organizer, like, when I was talking, like when I would turn left to right, it, was like a, it seemed like it took a while. He's like, well, we sold 120,000 tickets. It's like, oh, that would explain it. But I remember walking off stage, and a guy confronts me, and he says, your problem is you don't tell people the bad news. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> Try not to. That's not really that interesting to me. But this idea that, they, <laughs> that what you should really do is just tell people how horrific they are. But what strikes me is none of us don't know that. 
Is anybody here fuzzy on your own? Are any of you like, I've been pretty awesome from the get-go. You know what I mean? This idea, that, and for many people, religion was like, well, we're gonna let them know how far. I don't know anybody. It seems like that's the thing that's most right in front of us. Uh, one of the images that, that is used very early on in the Celtic stream comes from a ninth century Irish teacher um, named John Scotus Erugina. Um, Erugina? Erugina. John Scotus Erugina. <laughs> And it, I got and Rob it, Bell. It's, <laughs> that guy got John Scottis, Aragina. Um, but awesome. it's, it's much easier to remember when you translate it because it just means John the Irishman from Ireland. <laughs> so, Aragina um, er, says um, that we have forgotten who we are. Um, he says we, we suffer from soul forgetfulness. We've forgotten our real essence. Uh, and he, he speaks of Jesus as our memory. Uh, and then he, he uses other words like our revelation. And um, the root of the word revelation is revelare, which just means to lift the veil. So he sees Jesus as lifting the veil, not to show us something that is foreign to us, but to show us something that is at the very heart of our being, but which we've forgotten, or we've for fallen out of relationship with it. That's so beautiful. Uh, you talk about nature, well, John Scottus Irigina, you talk about nature and grace, and like this dance or interplay between nature and grace and how they're both Sacred gifts. And I, I, honestly, this part, I was like, I, I need more on, on how, you under, how you talk about nature and grace and how they relate to each other. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Eryugina is a sort of medieval writer, and you have to plow through, you know, some hundreds of pages sometimes, and then you get to a, a nugget of gold, and you think, it, that was worth it, and, and I'll read another few hundred for something. But one of his nuggets is, uh, he says so succinctly, he says, nature is the gift of being, and our being is sacred. So nature is the gift of being, he says. Grace is the gift of well-being. So grace isn't given to make us something other than ourselves or more than natural. Yeah, or other than natural, it's given to make it to to return us to our our deepest nature, or our true essence, our of Godness, to that wisdom, that creativity, that love longing, um, that is at the heart of our being. Okay, I have to read page count, page ten. <laughs> Grace is not given to make us something other than ourselves but to make us radically ourselves. Grace is not given to implant in us a foreign wisdom, but to make us alive to the wisdom that was born with us in our mother's womb. Grace is given not to lead us into another identity, but to reconnect us to the beauty of our deepest identity. And grace is not given that we might find some exterior source of strength, but that we might be established again in the deep inner security of our being 
and in learning to lose ourselves in love for one another to truly find ourselves. <laughs> Do you ever, when you write that sentence, are you like, I think I'm gonna have a sandwich now. <laughs> like what happens? Like when you write that, do you ever do you ever just say like, damn? Do you ever just dance? Do you do you turn up some music? Like, what do you, when you wrote that sentence? Do you know that that's amazing? Well, um, that's a weird question. I'm such a hard way to frame it, but I mean no, but I mean it's interesting because um, I don't know what it's like for you when you read the material that you've written. But uh, I think we saw that. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, sometimes when I read material that I've written, I I think, you know, it's out there now. I can't call it back. Yeah. And and I I I just sometimes feel, oh, you know, that 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 was horribly written. It was confused. And um, and then other times I think, oh, that that was brilliant. And, and, oh, good. And, and, I swing, <laughs> and I swing around quite, quite a yeah. bit on it. But um, I think one of my th- feelings about writing is that sometimes, and, and this for me is, is a great experience um, that, that one can have as a writer, and that is I don't recognize myself much in it, uh, which is to say that I, th- I think at those moments it's coming from within us, from within us. And I've, I've done, you know, it is work writing, but so I've done some of the work for, for giving expression to what, what is within us. And um, at those moments, it, it, it's a very liberating experience to know that something has come, um, you know, through the listening process and through the trying to craft um, word after word. And, um, and that, for me, is the great... The great satisfaction. Yeah. So well said. Um, you have this great part about conflicting energies, which you say we f- you write we find new beginnings, not by looking away from the conflicting energies that stir within us, but by looking within them for the sacred origin of life and desire. In the midst of confusions and struggle in our lives, we are being invited to search deeper than the shadows for the light of our beginnings. I love that phrase, conflicting energies. My, one of my teachers, uh, George McLeod um, of Iona, <clears throat> um, founder of the Iona community of today, one of his mantras of teaching was to say, where, where is the turbulence? Um, both within ourselves but also in the world. Uh, he would say, where is the turbulence? Go there. Because something new is trying to break through. So the... Um, so let's... Okay, <laughs> <laughs> let's just let that yeah. sit in the room. Where is the turbulence? Go there. Because something new is trying to break through. It's like um, a place of labor pain, you know, where something, something's trying to be born. And 
There's been so much in our, in our culture and at times our religion that has uh, encouraged us to flee from those conflicted yeah. places, especially the inner, inner places of conflict. Um, but I think that a lot of that, again, just comes on the back of the starting point, the, the, the sense uh, that what is deepest in us is opposed to God. Because if that's the case, then, then you know, we don't have resources for moving deep, so let's, con let's run away from the conflict. Let's pretend that the, the answer or salvation or wholeness is to be found by somehow transcending the conflict rather than um, facing it, uh, wrestling with it, trying to look to the deeper strand of what is the new thing trying to come up. Yeah, I've always been struck with how the word pain and the word pang sound so similar and they're spelled so similarly. They're like so close together in terms of letters and how whatever the pain is, if you can move it from why is this random pain, why am I undergoing this to, is this pain a pang? Of, is what, what new is trying to be birthed? Yeah. It's like just a couple letters because it's just a slight shift of the soul, the psyche, the mind, the heart, and yet it can completely transform your experience of something. Now, you mentioned Iona, um, an island. How far off the coast of Scotland? It's, uh, it sits in the Hebrides, which are the, um, the islands just off, off the west coast of Scotland. And um, Iona is um, <clears throat> two ferry journeys from, from the west of, of Scotland. And the, the island of Iona was the birthplace of Christianity for Scotland in the 6th century. And really since then, it's been this place of pilgrimage where people come from all over the world seeking uh, new beginnings uh, in their own lives for their nations, for their families. So it's an extraordinary place of convergence. You know, people used, when I, when Ali and my wife and I were there for um, four years living in the Abbey, people used to sometimes say, you know, do you not feel terribly cut off on this a little island, three miles by one and a half miles. Um, do you not feel terribly cut off there? And and I I always felt no. I I feel more in touch with the world on Iona than in than even in busy cities because the world is is converging and passing through Iona, and um, no one happens to be on Iona. It, it's not. You, you don't pass through Iona, you know, yeah. on route anywhere. So everyone who's there has chosen to be there and has taken this intentional journey of, of flights and trains and ferries and buses and another ferry to be there. And uh, it means that, that people often arrive um, with an open heart and... Uh, have journeyed in order to receive. So to, to be on an island where people uh, have arrived with openness of heart uh, and with the recognition that they're yearning for some new beginning in their life or in the nation or in the world, it makes Iona this pla place of, of great change and um, come to Iona. <laughs> Not all at once. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small island. <laughs>
Uh, Kristen and I have this adjective that we use, stonehenge And by stonehenge we mean those places, thin places, where you become aware of the depth of things. It's like closer, thinner. There's more going on at some level. When you describe Iona, that's what it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, it is a... I mean, George McLeod, my, my teacher, um, used to say, you know, Iona is a thin place. I mean, he didn't mean that every other place was thick. Um, <laughs> he was meaning that there are certain places um, where uh, the translucent... that are sort of translucent... Um, in which the light much more immediately is 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 breaking through, um, but one of the things that that George McLeod always taught that I think is so important because it, it's it, it's essential that we not romanticize these thin places, um, but that we see these thin places these um, they're like icons through which we're more readily glimpsing something of the sacred within all things. Uh, these are places where we're, we are reminded how to see. These are places where we're sort of renewed in these energies that we're being invited not to come away from Iona and say, um, you know, it's only on Iona. It's only in these thin places. The, I think part of the strength of what Iona has become uh, in the modern era is a, a place where, where we are reminded that that light is is everywhere present. It's um, it's it's right now shining from your eyes. It's um, you know just have a look in one another's eyes here, and and you'll glimpse something of that light that comes from the be beginning. It comes from the very essence. Now, uh, I'm uh, <laughs> by page nineteen. You mention several different times, which I find so fascinating. You trace the modern world and the Western world that we are all living in that's very, in many ways, polarized and tumultuous at this moment. But you trace a lot of things back to the fourth century. And you talk about imperialism and empire and how shifts in the fourth century we are in the modern world still suffering from, or living with the, the effects of. Can you say more about that? Yes, it was, in the, it was in the fourth century that Christianity got into bed with empire. Um, that was when our religious um, uh, tradition became wedded, very wedded to power. And uh, there were, I believe, there were many inconvenient truths uh, within our Jesus wisdom, uh, inconvenient to empire. And, I mean, you've already touched on that tonight. That's why, you know, Jesus challenges the, f the falseness and um, injustice of empire at, at cost. Um, and th so there's, there's so much in that Jesus wisdom stream that was, that was inconvenient to empire and uh, and in order for Christianity to to be retained as religion of empire, a lot of the inconvenient stuff was pushed aside. And uh, it was in the fourth century that the uh, 
empire uh, it decided on which books should should come within the canon of holy scripture i mean I mean, in what other area of life would we tolerate being told what to read by uh, a council of men appointed by the umpire? Uh, <laughs> um, but we've quite passively read what they told us to read. Um, but the reality is that there were many other testimonies to Jesus that had been written. And in the fourth century, when those writings didn't make it into the canon of, of prescribed reading, Many of those writings um, were, had to be hidden, hidden away. Some of them were destroyed. Um, many of them became fragmented. But one of the interesting things that's happening at, at this moment in time, um, I mean, in the 20th century, in a place like Nag Hammadi in Egypt, the earth uh, threw these writings back up at us. <laughs> and. Um, and uh, some of those writings have a radically different uh, vision of, of what Jesus was, was teaching. Um, so we need to ask lots of questions about what was happening in the fourth century. And that's when many of the doctrines that have come to occupy central ground, like the doctrine of original sin, that's when those doctrines came into sort of sharp articulation because that that is convenient to empire empire doesn't want to hear that wisdom and sacredness is at the heart of the people um, empire wants to dispense truth from above and find a form of religion that will control the people not not revere the people um, and similarly um, empire doesn't want to hear that matter is sacred um, and, and by empire, I'm not just meaning the Roman Empire, I'm meaning the British Empire, I'm meaning the American Empire. Wait, say more about that, that matter. How is matter being sacred a threat to empire? If, if matter is sacred, then we can't do whatever we wish to it. <laughs> Some people would have dropped the mic right there. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I'm struck there was this image from a couple of months ago with the President of the United States at a table surrounded by white men signing a thing to drill a pipe into the earth to take things out of the earth because it's there for us to take. And, even, and it was a photo opportunity that was staged very intentionally, but it was like white men taking stuff from the earth. And there were even people at that site of a different ethnic heritage going, please don't take things out of our land because it's like sacred and holy to us. Which goes back to if it is sacred and holy, then you draw a circle on it. You keep it at you. Yeah, and, um, I mean, your reference to <clears throat> a bunch of men um, making these decisions um, is also something that uh, tragically relates to what was happening in the fourth century. Uh, because certainly within the Christian tradition, that was when the place of the feminine was um, was subordinated, and um, and this fear fear of the earth and fear of the feminine have have often gone hand in hand in in empire, because the sacred feminine was care, nurturing, cultivation, respect, relationship. stewardship, yeah. relationship, yeah. as opposed as opposed to exploitation. Yeah. So I remember you talking about how second century Celtic 
thinking was always the sacred was masculine and feminine. Yes, that's right, and and the um, the Celtic stream, and this is not to you know. Um, I'm always wary of becoming a Celtic fundamentalist. I mean, I'm <laughs> Is there such a thing? Can you do that? <laughs> you know, I'm not saying that, that this, is, this is a perfect tradition or this is the only tradition or that everyone needs to become Celtic. Uh, it's much more that I, I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that strand of our, of our Christian inheritance. And uh, so what, what we see in those earliest centuries in the Celtic world is um, a reverencing of the feminine and the masculine in relationship. And lots of sort of models of, of female le le leadership. We find wonderful characters like um, Bridget of Kildare um, as head of, of a double monastery, that is head of men and women living their monastic vows and vision and commitment uh, in, in relationship under the leadership of a woman. So these, these are some very different models. Um, and Bridget is such, such a color, I mean, she's such a colorful, wise, feminine uh, presence. And uh, one of the things she is very fondly remembered for, is she loved beer. And um, <laughs> she, she, she- What years were this? What was this? <laughs> sixth, sixth century. <laughs> Um, and, um, and the sixth century was a brilliant woman spiritual leader who loved beer named Bridget. That's right. <laughs> Is this your next book? <laughs> yeah, uh, Bridget, Bridget's in the title. Uh, but um, so Bri Bridget, and it was probably Guinness that she, you know. <laughs> and she, she loved the, the people to have beer, especially over Eastertide. And if there wasn't beer available, she would turn water into beer. I mean, you know, she, she just sort of upstages Jesus, I'm afraid. I mean, it's one thing, one thing to turn water into yeah. wine, but, you know, turn water into beer. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, these, these wonderful, um, I mean, they're, they're, they're full of color and character, so many of these sort of um, feminine uh, expressions of sacredness in the Celtic world. But, it, but it's a real uh, sense of needing one another. I mean, we, we, and it's not just speaking about the outer realm of men and women in relationship, it's certainly speaking about that, but I think it's also speaking about the feminine and the masculine energies within all of us uh, yearning, to, yearning to be um, conjoined or uh, needing to make love within us if we are to if, if we are to be moving towards wholeness in our lives that's just so good um i love what you the, i love how much in this book you talk about pelagius but you also talk about irenaeus and this christ in the primal which is just uh you you quote how Irenaeus said that Christ reconnects us to the first and in that sense to the most truly primitive energies within the body of creation and the human form. And what's so interesting is how often in your writings you're moving back and forth between the human body and what you call 
the body of creation. And I remember when I first started reading you, for you, like the environment was both an internal and external, um, that the earth, that nature, that the most elemental energies of all of creation, and then all the things happening inside all of us is all a seamless whole, which I think is a truth that you take it way back to like second century, but if that, that truth feels like it's right in the air right now and being reclaimed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the teachers that I draw from very heavily is the um, 20th century French Celtic teacher, uh, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And, yes. um, you know, one of his central uh, convictions is at the heart of matter is the heart of God. So the deeper we move uh, within the matter of our being, within the matter of the Earth's being, the closer we come to the sacred. Um, so that it, it's this um, celebration of the, of the withinness, the, the sort of imminent, to put it theologically, it's about the imminence of the sacred. Uh, without losing, without losing a sense also of the transcendence or the otherness or the beyondness or the unnameableness of the sacred, uh, but there's this desire always to keep returning to to what is deepest, um, and to know that you know when I move uh, more deeply into you, I'm moving towards something sacred. So I need to to move with care and with honor. Um, and on the lookout for how I can be part of releasing it. I love in D. Chardin's memoirs, he talks about staring at a rock and about a rock having depth and spirit and about that which is present in all matter. Uh, okay. Um, okay, we should do a couple more here because we got a couple more? Yeah. I know. Seriously, I don't know where to start. Okay, um, back to your Regina. You have this whole section on goodness. Goodness is not simply a feature of life. It is the very essence of life. It's not like tacked on. Um, can you say more about that? Not only is creation viewed as good, as coming out of the goodness of God, but is viewed as well as the or disclosing the heart of God's being. Um, can you say more about that? Because I found that whole section... <clears throat> One of the things Eugenia says says about that is if if we were to extract uh, goodness from the universe, uh, everything would cease to exist. Um, and that's his way of saying, you know, it's not just a feature that we find here and there. It's actually part of the essence, um, because the essence is is uh, of God. Um, and uh, so uh, that, again, it leads us into this challenging uh, territory of looking for that goodness, even in those with whom we most passionately disagree. And uh, people, uh, leadership in our Western world, uh, with whom we may be in, in very passionate disagreement about where where. They are leaving, le leading through fear-driven policies. So what, what, what's the way forward? Uh, is the way forward just to denounce them, uh, to, to demonize them? Uh, or is the, 
way forward to ask how can we together be part of uh, liberating that goodness of the sacred that was formed with them in their mother's womb. So um, uh, if, if we do that, I believe we're into the costly realm of relationship. <laughs> you know, not, what, what, was your, what was your photograph? The relationship like you want? Oh, right, right. Relationships on your terms. On your terms, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> See, you have such a kindness and gentleness, but there's also like a spine of steel. Yeah. Right? Anybody picking that up? Yeah. Like, you're not mucking around. But I, you're also I, like all calm and... There's like a... I'm just so interested in how there are these beautiful... There's this dance in you, which I've noticed from the first time we met. You... Uh, Half of your presence is this calming, yeah, it's good news about my true self. Anybody know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh, we're going to be okay. But, there's an, an, but you're also moving with this other polarity, which is, so we resist, we stand up, we make things, we fight, we go. This, this uh, you know, Richard Rohr has a center for action and contemplation. It's like the best name thing ever. The center for action and contemplation. Like, go, but, but think about it first. Um, which is how the whole thing works. Yeah. I, um, I received an email a couple of days ago from a woman who had been at a talk I was giving last year up in the San Francisco area. And it was, a, it was an email of, of a, apology um, to me. Uh, entirely unnecessary, but she thought uh, she should maybe apologize because she was at an event, uh, and at one point in in the presentation, when she began to see that this sort of peaceful presence was actually calling for change, um, she had blurted out loud in in this uh, sort of theological company, "He's a fucking radical." <laughs> Um, Are we I, recording this? Because I want to just replay that <laughs> over and over. So, um, I, I, you know, I wrote to her saying, you know, don't apologize. Um, you, you, you were seeing uh, the important connection between this return to our true debts and, and out outward radical transformation. And, and it's those two that are, that are dear to me. Um, I, I, I don't believe we should just be seeking refuge. I think there is great refuge and place, the place of peace within us. But it's in order to, to, um, to be ch changed and strengthened in terms of our action. You know what, what someone like Gandhi called soul, soul force. That, and we are living at, 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 at such uh, a moment that is calling for soul force. And uh, I think one of, the, one of the things about Gandhi is that he realized that his ego force and our ego force isn't up, isn't up to, the, to, to the demands of, of the change that needs to happen. 
Um, so one of the last things Gandhi wrote in his autobiographical work was, I must become zero. Um, and this was not about a hatred of the self, but a putting of the self down. It was realizing that it's those steps, it's the soul within my soul, it's the strength within a, you know, all strength that we're being invited to access. That's so great. Okay, a couple, we have to wrap up with a couple things here about sex. Um, <laughs> I'm surprised you waited so long. Well, I mean, you waited till page 55, so it's quite a buildup there. Um, you have, um, you're talking about the sacredness of matter, which, um, and fear versus relationship and how we relate to matter. Um, and then you talk about this will radically change the way we touch matter, the matter of human bodies, the matter of the earth, the matter of the body politic, and how we relate as sovereign nations. Once again, you're moving like from body to body, which I love. But then um, you go back to the fourth century, which I found so interesting, to when empire sort of hijacked faith, we find a marked fear dominating the approach to sexuality. You trace... You trace this back, whatever, how many years, to the fourth century. Instead of our natural sexual attractions and longings for physical union being regarded as among the deepest and holiest expressions of the dance of the universe, increasingly they were treated as opposed to the rhythm of God's being. Instead of God being viewed as the unity from which all life comes, and therefore as engendering in us holy desire for union and soul and in body, a tragic separation was introduced between the spiritual and the physical. And then you do this thing, and the church began to articulate a belief in the perpetual virginity of Mary, which this part right here, come on. It's interesting to note that Mary in John's gospel is never referred to as a virgin, and you talk about how at the birth of every child, the holy is born. In the conception of every creature, the sacred one is at work. The gospel of Christ reveals not a foreign truth, that God is born on earth only through denial of natural or via supernatural action. The deepest, the dearest and most hidden of truths, that we are what Christ is, born of God. And then at the heart of every human being and every creature is the light that was in the beginning and through whom all things have come into being. <laughs> I, uh, it's just so interesting to me that a lot of the pain and wounds even being caused now about who we are and sexuality, you trace back a long ways, 1,600 years. Uh, I've been doing some work lately on some of the debate that was happening in the, um, in the sixth century when, when the imperial mission, as I like to call it, the, the mission based very much in bed with empire, uh, 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 makes some headway into Britain, which until then had been primarily Celtic mission. And we have some correspondence actually from the figure Augustine of Canterbury who was leading that imperial mission and uh, the, there's some correspondence between that Augustine and the Bishop of Rome. Uh, 
asking questions like, should women uh, during their menstruation be allowed into church? And should they be allowed um, uh, during their menstruation to receive communion? And the, the Bishop of Rome writes back saying, um, menstruation is a defilement, but it's not exactly women's fault. Isn't that generous of them? <laughs> and um, so he says, so they shouldn't be prevented from entering church, but if out of uh, regard for the sacrament they they stay away, they are to be commended. And then uh, the second question is, um, and should men, after they have known their wives, should they be allowed to, to come to church before they have washed themselves? I mean, one, one wonders what the means test was for knowing whether the men had, <laughs> had washed themselves. And, I mean, if you don't laugh at this, you have to weep. Yeah. And maybe we need to do both. Yeah. Because these, these are sort of perversions around the sacredness of the natural, the sacredness of the feminine, the sacredness of conjoining. Um, these are perversions that still haunt a lot of our culture, a lot of our religion. Um, many of us know of times in our own lives when we've gone to very haunted places ar around our um, physicalness and around our sexual <coughs> energy. Uh, so let, let's do both. Let's l learn to laugh, but let's, let's weep our way. Let's yeah. lament uh, uh, yeah. this part of our inheritance and let's, let's exorcise it from the household. Thank you. Yeah. It's interesting reading this section and thinking about Time's Up, Me Too, Women's March, that what we are seeing in a resurgence of the divine feminine, it feels like it's the healing of a 1,600-year-old wound at some level, that it's a deeply spiritual thing that's happening that goes way deeper than just, yes, it's equal pay, yes, it's, but it's, the healing of a wound that's like subterranean in the Western world. Yeah. Um, and it's, which is why for so many of us, it has like a, like a deep bass note to it. Like it's, it's about something more than we even, it almost like feels like you're being caught up in something bigger than you even are aware of at the time. You know what I'm talking about? Um, but it's so interesting to me how you illuminate how much of this is literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. Mm. And it's like being dragged out into the open so that there can be healing. Okay, I, I got I to read one more passage. You know what I mean? And picture like a John Williams score underneath this. Or maybe Hans Zimmer, for those of you who get a little Miami Vice on us. Um, I love how you talk about... Um, you talk about that there are bodies are quivering with divine tones that long to be part of the birthing of the holy. Like you talk about our bodies being like musical notes that long to be in tune and in harmony with a larger score of music. I just love that image. The, um, 
I love, I love those opening words of John's gospel. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and then everything has come into being through the Word, which is to see that everything is essentially um, expression of the One, um, that, uh, that you are a unique expression, that each one of you um, has been born because the world needs the expression of the sacred that is at the heart of you. And the Celtic tradition really loved that, those opening words, so much so that they uh, brought paraphrases quite early on. And in Irenaeus in the second century, we find a paraphrase. And his paraphrase is, in the beginning was the sound. And the sound was with God, and the sound was God, and everything has been sounded into being. And one of the reasons I so love that, uh, that sense of each one of us and everything being a vibration of the sacred, uh, is also because it's so close to the East. Yeah. In the beginning was Om. You know, every, everything, everything has come from that first sound, from that first vibration. Um, and uh, it, it, it also moves in the realm of how do these sounds come into relationship? You know, how do we come back into relationship? You know, it's about a, it's about a dance or it's about a symphony of sound that we're being invited into. Oh, I love it. Okay, man, I love being with you. Let's do this again. Would you write another book so we can do another interview? Um, we were talking beforehand. You're doing work here in the States now four times a year. Can you tell them the name of the school that you've started or the movement? So I, I've started something called the School of Celtic Consciousness. And um, it, I love uh, that, by the way. Uh, I, I realized that it was, it, it's so, you know, we're living in, in a time of such sort of urgency of vision need for vision. Uh, for, for so many years, I had, as a sort of wandering teacher, I, I was sort of here, there, and everywhere I went to where the invitations were coming from, which is, which is the way of a wandering teacher. But a, a number of years ago, I realized, um, yeah, there's value in that wandering work. But what I really believe that this moment is calling for is to move deeper into this wisdom in a more intentional way. So these four locations across the country, California around this time of year, Colorado in the spring, um, New England in the summer, and Virginia in the autumn, um, an occasion for people to study this wisdom much more intentionally in a three-year type curriculum, but also to hold um, the, the accessing of wisdom together with spiritual practice, so that it's not, just, um, it's not just an intellectual engagement, it's actually um, about accessing that awareness of what's trying to stir within us and accessing where our strength is. Uh, and then um, asking, how, how do we combine this wisdom and the spiritual practice? How does that translate into compassionate action? Uh, very much, very similar to what Richard's doing with the, the Center of Action and Contemplation. It's, it's trying to hold the, that piece together. 
and to say that this moment in time is calling for uh, us to access ancient wisdom and uh, the strength of soul that we may translate it into action. And uh, where, do people, where do people sign up or hear about all that? Uh, you, you can find information out just by Googling my name, John Philip Newell. And the first site it takes you to is our little foundation called Heartbeat, which is about listening for the beat of the sacred deep within all things. And then looking for the Celtic school. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. So uh, after you've been to Iona, come to the school. <laughs> <laughs> or before. Well, I mean, personally, you've been so huge in my life. Uh, I can't even tell you. So thank you personally, and then for coming tonight and letting me introduce you to these friends. Thank you so much. <laughs>